When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts and home to a plethora of wonderful music-based podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Michaelidis, and after spending some 30 years in the music industry and working with some of the world's leading artists, I've finally been paroled, adopted by Pantheon and sharing some amazing stories from some equally amazing people. Moments That Rock is that moment where artists and music industry insiders share moments that rocked their world. And I love it. And as the Italian poet and playwright Cesare Pavese once said, we don't remember days, we remember moments. Today's guests, Steve Tannett from IRS Records, amongst many other things. Um, He'll introduce himself in a moment. And then we've got an old favourite, Mark Radcliffe, who's just a great storyteller that uh, we dug out something of him talking about interviewing and meeting, of course, the great Bruce Springsteen. So, on with the show. I'm Steve Tannett. I am the music director for Marshall Amplification. And uh, I've been around the music industry since... 1977 when I signed my first record deal to Illegal Records with Miles Copeland. For those of you listening who don't know who Miles Copeland is, uh, Miles Copeland um, uh, was, or is because he's still alive, he he um, is, a, is, a, is a fairly well-known uh, entrepreneur, manager, probably one of the big greatest manager rock and roll managers I think uh, that ever lived because um the success that he achieved with the police as a manager and then subsequently looked after Sting's solo career for you know right up until you know 2000 or whatever it was starting back in 77 you know Miles was the guy who really made the police alongside the police with their success he 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 orchestrated the whole thing and was really very influential in um creating um an independent structure for you know music to be released in america because at the time um a lot of labels were not really able to process punk rock and things that were coming out of the punk rock scene. So um, he was the first guy to, you know, get the Buzzcocks released in America and the Stranglers and the Damned. And he and his brother, who created a music booking agency called FBI, were one of the first agencies to bring bands over. And our discovery of the band R.E.M. came through 
the music agency FBI, who which was his brother. So the Copeland family were very, very um, you know, important in rock and roll history. Throughout the last 40 plus years or whatever it is, 45 years, I've worked with uh, many artists, um, mostly associated to Miles Copeland in the early years, and that includes the police and Sting. And then through IRS, which was again part of the Miles Copeland dynasty, uh, REM, the Go-Go's, the Bangles, Squeeze, um, Wall of Voodoo, The Alarm, Doctor of Medics, Paul Carrick, Black Sabbath, and a very lengthy list following on from that, including artists like Ginger Baker, Glenn Matlock, Chaz Jankel from The Blockheads, um, and more recently, uh, lots of artists associated to Marshall Amplification. Um, I set up the Marshall Records label with Marshall Amplification in 2016 and um, worked with a number of artists uh, over at that uh, there where I am currently, including uh, Therapy, who... Um, some of you might remember are still very much an ongoing touring force and 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 successful band internationally and most recently um a band called Nova Twins who um were Mercury shortlisted this year and have broken through as a a, a successful international touring band very much in the rock end of the business so summarizing my career i suppose it does involve a lot of guitars. So <laughs> hence the Marshall connection seems about the right place for me at my age. So yes, guitars, loud, loud music and very um, interesting people. Moments that rocked for me, I guess there's a few that would uh, be worthy of, talking about here on uh, this podcast. And um, I suppose I should start the moments that rocked with my moment that rocked the most, which was um, in August in 1977. My band, which was called Menace, were breaking into the punk scene. And the first wave of punk had already happened, the Dam, the Clash, the Sex Pistols, and we were all great fans of those. And, you know, I was lucky enough to see the, the Clash and the Jam and the Buzzcocks at the Rainbow Theatre um, in the heady summer of 77, uh, and it was brilliant. And so when I got the chance to, to play on the circuit, the Roxy was still... Um, a, a club that every punk band had to play. So we were playing there uh, one evening and um, the dressing room door swung open and in walked this American guy, very brash, with blonde hair. And he, in his inimitable style, said, uh, you guys were pretty good. Um, do you want to make a record? And uh, we all sort of looked at each other, you know, wiped our snotty noses and went, what do you mean? Do we want to make a record? Yeah, of course we do. And he then said, okay, well, be in Pathway Studios on Sunday. And we kind of looked at each other and he walked out and there was one of his people was left behind, a guy called Kim Turner. And, and we said, does he mean this Sunday? Because 
you know, yeah, we are available, but and, and Kim said, yeah, 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 we we've got a booking at Pathway Studios. You you can come and record for there, and so no contract or anything like that. And we went to Pathway Studios, and sure enough, the same guy, Kim Turner, was in the studio. Miles wasn't there, and Pathway Studios at that time was um, it was a small eight track studio and. Artists that had already recorded there were people like Squeeze and Early Dire Straits, I believe. Elvis Costello made his first album, My Aim Is True. There, it was a it was a kind of a cool little grungy, very small egg boxes on the wall type studio. And anyway, we cut two sides, um, screwed up, and insane society, and eventually were told to go to an office in the just off Oxford Street, Dryden Chambers. And and there was a pretty crazy bunch of people. And Miles Copeland put a contract in front of us, which was for four sing two singles. So we'd already recorded two. And so we signed it. So from that day on, I suppose the rest of my life was kind of off on a strange journey because from that, you know, releasing music through illegal records which was the label um in that pretty short order after that that was um the beginning of you know going on the road doing shows and trying to make it we of course didn't make it but there were some uh good fun moments along the way but eventually um we parted company. We released the singles with Miles's label, Illegal Records, and released a couple of others, uh, notably on Small Wonder, which uh, was another little kind of interesting, cool little indie label. Um, and uh, we were doing a show at Railway Hotel, and the Railway Hotel um, was in West End Lane, London, and it had originally been called Klute's Clique back in the 70s, 60s. So there were, a, you know, it was always associated with music. Anyway, it was this tiny little room above a pub. And um, we did the show and Miles came along and he sort of looked at it and went, why are you wasting your time? This isn't going to happen. Um, and we were like, oh, that's sad. And he said, you need a gimmick, you know. And I remember this. He said, you need a gimmick. And uh, why don't you put a crash helmet on and run from side to side to the stage, you know, bashing your head off the walls. And I was like, I don't really think if it's come to that, maybe I ought to rethink this anyway. So we were at a very low ebb, but he said to me, why don't you come and work for me? And I remember thinking, you know, what do you mean, you know, come and work for you? And, and he said, well, you know, we've still, we're releasing music, you know, we, we, you know, we, we, you know, you've got your singles and we've got the police singles and we've got squeeze and, you know, and I'm, I'm always looking to get more records. And so why don't you come over and work for us? And so I thought maybe that's a flippant comment, but actually it turned out to be a genuine come over and work for me. So anyway, I trooped over one day across to, um, Codrington Muse, which um, was near the Portobello Road. And sure enough, there were all these kind of, you know, people running around, you know, and lots of seven inch singles and putting 
you know, people putting things in boxes and taking them out in boxes and selling them. And um, I, he was there and I said, I've, I'm here. And he went, oh, oh, yeah. And I thought he'd forgotten he'd offered me the job. Anyway, the job was there. And um, I, I think I was paid something like 17 quid a week or something. It was very low, whatever it was, I remember. And uh, that became the start of what then eventually morphed into IRS records. And of course, that's where a lot of my career really took off and probably where my association to Tony might have started to formulate because um, the around about 1983, um, I'd been now working there for four years and had been lucky enough to work on The Fall and um, a band called The Cramps, who were a fantastic band. Miles came back from America off one of his trips and said, I, I picked up this record and it was Gravest Hits by The Cramps. And I said, oh, that looks pretty cool. And I put it on and it was absolutely mind-blowing it was brilliant and so I said oh yeah let's uh yeah I'll definitely get involved I, I think I reckon I reckon they want to buy this round at Rough Trade and went around to Rough mm -hmm. Trade and it was like yeah get as many of those as you can get well we can sell them and um we eventually you know got the band to come over and they and the police were making their breakthrough at around about that time and we're up at a level of playing um, shows at places like Hammersmith Odeon and Hammersmith Palais. And Miles put the cramps on as the support band to the police. So now it was really starting to take shape and the cramps really kind of took off. So I was selling a lot of cramps records out of the basement of the Codrington Muse. And um, uh, I got invited to see a band called The Alarm. And um, at this point, I hadn't been asked to do any A&R or anything like that. I was doing sales and putting records in sleeves and so on. And um, Miles, uh, I went, I, I was taken off to see this band, The Alarm, supporting the Bootown Rats in, I think it was Brunel University or somewhere like that. Anyway, I loved this band you know and I thought well this is kind of I came from punk they're sort of not punk but they're really they've got you know they're holding up guitars acoustic guitars and putting them all together and holding them in the air and everything was really kind of exciting and I thought I wonder if I could sign that band so I went back to Miles and I said can I sign a band to the label and he sort of went uh only if it's cheap and so <laughs> I went and made an offer to to the alarm to make a record with us for for our illegal records label actually just to start it off, and we went off to Matrix Studios, and that was the point where we now had cut a couple of songs, marching on, and a I can't remember what was on the B side to be fair, and it might be the third light maybe, and um, we got a little bit of success, started to, you know, eyes were coming on the band, the band were getting better shows and they were on my label. So everything kind of developed from there. So I don't want this first moments that rock story to go on forever, but needless to say, 
the moment that rocked was Miles coming into the dressing room to meet me and then him then subsequently offering me a job and me being allowed to sign a band who then went on to some, you know, fairly substantial success, you know, chart success and touring success and so on. So that really were, you know, from, from the moments that rocked, that was definitely that rocked my world for sure. So that was my first moment that rocked. Indeed, the first of many of Steve Tannett's moments that rocked. There'll be more of Steve in uh, podcasts to come over the next few weeks, but we'll uh, take a short break, and after that, we'll be back with uh, BBC broadcaster and author, the great Mark Radcliffe. And now... Hi, I'm Mark Radcliffe. I started out in radio in the UK in 1979 and I've been on the BBC National Airwaves on Radio 1, 2, 6 Music, sometimes on 3, 4 and 5 as well uh, for over 30 years now. A moment that rocked my world and uh, one of those moments where you almost have an out-of-body experience, really, when you're meeting someone so famous and so much of a hero that you can't quite believe that you're in the same room as them and they're talking to you was meeting Bruce Springsteen, who I've been a fan of, obviously, for decades and decades. And, uh, you know, he's one of those people who, 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 I don't know, you think you're never going to meet, really. You're never going to bump into Bruce Springsteen in the course of your, of, of your normal work. And so to actually get the call to go and talk to him, it was about the album Western Stars, which I think is a fabulous record. I think that, that was at that point that was his best album for a very long time. Um, I, I think it's a majestic piece of work which really celebrates the kind of classic American songwriting traditions. You know, each song has a bit of kind of, it's almost like Wichita Lineman, half of it. You know, it's just, a, it's kind of widescreen and baritone guitars, and it's just a classic American record. And, um, you know, I, I love it to death and still listen to it regularly. So I got the call that Bruce Springsteen would do some interviews. And so like all these things, I live in uh, near Manchester in the Northwest of England. So when you do one of the big stars, generally you'll be told to go down to London. And the interview will be done at a, um, a hotel that's so posh it doesn't even look like a hotel from the outside it just looks like you know someone really rich it looks like their townhouse it's kind of so discreet it'll be in a back alley somewhere it'll be in a busy part of London but down a quiet back alley and uh, yeah, you, you'll be summoned in and then the same thing always happens the same thing happened to me when I interviewed Mick Jagger you walk in and uh, you're directed to a desk and there'll be a woman in um, dressed all in black with a clipboard and a headset on. And she will look at you as if you've kind of come into empty the bins or something or bleed a radiator she will have no idea who you are she will never have heard of you and she will look doubtfully down the list and say you know hoping upon hope she will be that your name's not there anyway then they'll find your name and you'll be sent upstairs where they'll have taken over a whole floor and you'll be greeted by a senior press officer usually a bloke who's about sort of you know 60 or 70 years old and that bloke who, who you've never met before will greet you like a long lost brother 
And so it's a, that's a really interesting dynamic you get. Anyway, then you we put in a little room, um, you know, can be a bedroom, you know, it's sort of like sometimes you find yourself just sitting on a bed with, I remember having that with Van Morrison, you know, and uh, I was one of the very few people who Van Morrison was quite civil to during that interview. But, uh, and, and you wait and you wait until your time comes up or they've finished what they're doing. So I was waiting in this hotel with my producer Lorna and uh, someone recording the sound. And um, then um, someone else comes in from press and says, Bruce will be here in five minutes and you've got 20 minutes. Okay, I said, fine, okay. And then suddenly uh, the door opens and there's Bruce Springsteen, your actual Bruce Springsteen, you know, who, who sort of henceforth, I sort of knew he was real, but it's like he was a mythical figure. It's like sort of Gollum has come in the room or something. You know, it's like, it's, it's, you're like, who oh, you are you, aren't you? It really is you. And it's like sort of um, being greeted by someone off Mount Rushmore or something, or that poster of Che Guevara. It's just a, a face you've grown up with your whole life. It's right there in front of you and talking with its mouth, as it would. But it just seems surreal somehow. Bruce Springsteen was uh, dressed in, uh, he, was, he was double denim, he had a denim shirt on and jeans. And um, he's not a big guy, but like a lot of um, these uh, uh, famous people, he's got quite a big head and a small body. You know, and those, those people, Debbie Harry's a bit the same. Those people look great in photographs. And uh, we, there is a photograph of me and Bruce Springsteen, which if you want to Google it, Mark Radcliffe, Bruce Springsteen, it's hilarious. Because we, we, at these junkets, you always get one chance to have a photo by the official photographer. Um, and it'll just be three, two, one, snap, and that's your lot. And so Bruce Springsteen and I stood next to each other and he put his arm around my shoulder. And I thought, oh, that's very chummy, isn't it? But, but of course, because he's slightly smaller than me, and his arm was round my shoulder. And what I realised when I saw the photo is it sort of forced me down to look smaller than him. Now, whether he's done that deliberately years of practice, I don't know. But when you look at the picture of us together, he looks fantastic. He looks so noble. And his face, he looks like an Easter Island statue or something. And I look like I've been caught by sort of zombie head shrinkers or something. My head looks about the size of a grapefruit. It's a totally bizarre photograph. And so I'm rather sorry that that's the only photo that I've got with him. But he was very amiable company. You know, I do find that, that talk, uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to talk to, you know, some of the greats, Bowie and McCartney and, and Jagger and people, you know, and the people, the, those huge stars, when they do decide to give you their time, they are very accommodating. They're not trying to be cool because these people have got nothing to prove. If they don't want to do any interviews, they don't do any interviews. You know, so they don't have to kind of come over as cool. or They've got nothing to prove. So they've decided, yes, I will talk to these people. And, uh, and they're usually sort of really attentive and, and really courteous. And Bruce Springsteen was like that. And he was sort of, you know, he's kind of jolly and laughing along, you know, and sort of, you know, he was, he, he was very amenable. And I think he could tell that, I was a fan and that I loved the record. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Of course, what these people don't want is for you to be a kind of uber fawning fan, telling them they're great. You know, they want to have a proper conversation with someone who's listened to the record and thought about it. And so um, you're always trying to, in a way, find a balance between your own fandom and doing a professional job of, uh, of making an interview that's going to be good for people to listen to. I took him a present that day. There's a brewery in Manchester called ABC Brewery. And they did a beer called Juice Springsteen. And uh, so I bought six cans of Juice Springsteen and, and uh, took them down and, uh, and gave them to Bruce. And he sort of looked at it and said, oh, should I be getting royalties off this? <laughs> and, so, uh, um, and so he took his beer away. Um, now, whether he drank it or not, um, I don't know. I can see no good reason why he wouldn't because, uh, but, you know, it was nice beer. But, you know, um, I don't know. It's just uh, it, it's just a great moment for me to think that, you know, when you're a kid growing up and, you know, with David Bowie, I bought, you know, Ziggy Stardust with my pocket money from the, from the paper round that I used to do. And I remember being with Paul McCartney for Sold On Song for Radio 2 and it was just me and him in Abbey Road Studios and he's playing Blackbird on the acoustic guitar. And you think, how has this happened? You know, how has this happened? And so as I was sat in that hotel that afternoon on a little sofa, just chatting away, to Bruce Springsteen, you know, having sort of, you know, had my, my ears blown out by, you know, Born to Run and the Greetings from Asbury Park and all those, all those great early Bruce Springsteen records. Um, it's a bit of an out-of-body experience. You think, how is, how is this even happening? Um, also, I did what I ask all these people. Um, I said, you know, you've made so many amazing records. If um, you could only pick one, if there's a fire and you can only rescue one of your albums, which one would it be? 
And uh, Bruce Springsteen thought about this. And uh, after a while, he said, Do you know what? He said, I think maybe Nebraska, which is a really interesting choice because that is his sort of bleakest and most stripped down of, of all his records. But I guess, in a way, that's the closest you'll get through listening to a record to feeling that you're getting to know the man. Do you know what I mean? There's no adornments, there's no band, there's no E Street people on it or anything. It's him and the guitar recorded on a, on a, like a Porter studio, a cassette Porter studio, I think. I think it was originally going to be demos, but when he got them back, he thought, do you know what? It's, it's sometimes less is more. Sometimes it all is in the, in the demo. And, and that's what it becomes. And so it's a, you know, with this black and white cover of a sort of bleak open road, it's a very stark and, uh, and bleak record, you know, so it was an interesting choice because I suppose we associate Bruce Springsteen with this big sound and the big music and the big show and the epic shows three hours long, you know. I mean, he did say, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe Born to Run, I should take that as well if I can grab two. But I thought, you know, what an interesting choice. And it told you something about the guy, I think, that out of all the massive records and the big sound that he produced, um, the one that was perhaps closest to his heart was just him and a guitar. That's really interesting because um, I read a book by Walter Yetnikov, who was running CBS and he also con uh, concocted the deal with Sony. But apparently, um, like a big artist does, they deliver their album to the, like, the main man, you know, and they have like a listening session. So he comes in and he, and he brings Nebraska in to Walter Yetnikov's office and they sit down and listen to it. At the end of it, Walter looks at him and says, Bruce, I have to tell you, as the head of your record company, this record won't sell. And it's a really poignant moment because Springsteen looked at him and said, Walter, I have to make this record. And I think the, the lesson that came from, from me reading that book with Yetnikov was he was like in charge of running a company. You know when they turn around and say, we can't release this record now, we need to release it nearer Christmas. He allowed him to release that record where some record companies would have refused it because Born to Run had been like, uh, Born to Run had been such a huge success. Um that, you know, they wanted to follow up with an, another huge album. But but as an artist, he had to make this record, like he said. So he let him release it. He didn't sell anything like the last one. So then he comes back and he delivers, like, you know, Born in the USA, which becomes, like, you know, an album that takes him into the stratosphere. Um, but I think that's a brilliant story in as much as, you know, the, the head of a huge corporation who ultimately has to satisfy shareholders, allowing an artist to release a record that he knows is not going to sell as well as the last one. That, that really was significant to me because I think a lot of record companies would have said, no, you need to go around with there's no singles on this. Of course, there's no singles on it. But that's like he probably wouldn't have been able to make Born in the USA unless he'd have had that kind of release artistically. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 